After releasing her debut album in 2004, Catherine McClellan earned immediate critical acclaim. Labeled critics' favorite new discovery by Penguin Eggs magazine in 2008. Since then, she's toured internationally extensively, and her music has been a perennial fixture at the top of Canada's Roots music charts, winning acclaim from the international media. Her father, Gene McClellan, made music history as the first Canadian songwriter to have a song broadcast over one million times in the United States. Among his compositions, Snowbird, made famous by Anne Murray, Put Your Hand in the Hand, The Call, Pages of Time, and Thorn in My Shoe. Elvis Presley, Loretta Lynn, Joan Baez, and Bing Crosby were among the many artists who recorded his songs. A new documentary, The Song and the Sorrow, about Gene, his suicide in 1995, and how Catherine became ready to confront the hurtful mystery of her absent parent and embrace his musical legacy is playing at the Rendezvous with Madness Festival in Toronto. And we'll give you all the details as to how you can see that. And I'm sure that people will have the opportunity to see the streaming and all sorts of other ways too. So we'll uh, we'll make sure you have all that information by the end. Uh, nice to see you, Catherine. Nice to be here. Thanks. So you begin the film with a, a, a quiet reminiscence of finding your father's body. And it is uh, a, a shocking but com- very compelling way to begin the documentary. You're only 14 years old when it happened. And you say that for many years you were not able to think about it. What what has changed? Well, it's been a long time, I guess. Yeah. You know, it's been over 20 years and I have a daughter myself and my, I guess, you know, early on in my early 20s, I started having uh, thoughts of, you know, I had depression, anxiety. I still do. Um, but I started to realize just how much I was like my dad in some ways. And that kind of terrified me to think that, you know, I could end up the same way that he did. And uh, so, yeah, I just started to confront my own demons. And then ultimately to do that, I had to confront my past and, you know, what happened with my dad. You say that you were angry for a long time. What changed uh, in 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 that way? Like, you say that the the process of grief is still happening. I guess that's what it was in the film. Um, are you still angry? No. No. <laughs> it's a, it's it's weird. I don't know. Um, well, it's a complicated thing. Right? It is. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, you know, I think anger. I know anger is definitely part of the grieving process. Mm-hmm. So. For some people, it doesn't take very long. Some people, it takes a very long time. Um, I think when you lose someone to suicide, there's a lot of anger because you think, you know, why didn't somebody stop this? Why didn't they stop it themselves? Why didn't they get the help they needed? And why did they leave me, you know? Um, But I don't know. I think also just in general, you can be angry at your parents for no good reason. (laughs) And... uh, you know, as I raised my own daughter, I started having a lot more compassion for my mom as, you know, basically raising us as a single mother. And uh, and as I became a musician touring around and uh, I started to gather, you know, some compassion for him and for what he was going through and starting to think of him as a real person and not just as my dad. So let's, let's talk about him uh, a little bit as you were growing up. So he started off his career in Toronto. I think he came here and played in a rock band. And I love Lenny Gallant talking about him and some others who had seen him perform and played with him. I think there's one guy that played with him and said, oh, he was something to see on stage when he was a, a, a young man playing probably up and down Young Street in some great and probably not so great bars here. But there was something special about him, it seemed. 
Yeah, apparently the girls liked him. That's <laughs> that's what Bob Ross. That's Restaurant rock and roll, is. man. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> they liked his crooked smile. Apparently, that's the line. Anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, he played in one of Canada's first rock and roll bands here in the fifties, and uh, ended up, uh, you know, Robbie Robertson was in that band mm-hmm. uh, while he was still in it, and they actually left the consoles to. Um, start their own band called the Swades, and then you know Robbie went off with Ronnie Hawkins, yeah. and that whole thing happened. Um, it was just a very short period of time, just a few years there, where he he was really digging rock and roll and and really enjoying it. And uh, but there was something about it that he didn't like, and that was uh, I think he started realizing he didn't enjoy the attention of being on stage. Mm-hmm. He loved the music part, um, but yeah, so he kind of ran away from it a bit and went to uh, Bible college. That was the next thing. So he. He was always jumping from one thing to another and often in extremes. Which is something, as you say, often uh, the the film kind of covers a a, a lot of this along the way. Uh, And the movie is called The Song and the Sorrow. Uh, He found fame not as a rock and roll musician, but as a a musician and songwriter. And I remember very vividly growing up in the Maritimes in the 70s and seeing him on television. And it seemed like I saw him on television a lot. Maybe it was just because he was living in PEI at the time. And and I know that the idea that someone uh, from the Maritimes had written songs that Elvis Presley was singing and that every Bing Crosby was recording and that sort of thing was a very big deal. It was a source of kind of, you know, maritime pride. Uh, but he was distinctive looking. He, he wore an eye patch uh, frequently, um, not always, sometimes glasses, but always an eye patch that I remember. And, uh, and, and sang uh, these kind of beautiful songs that weren't exactly rock and roll. They were, how would you describe them? I think most of them I would probably describe as uh folk songs now but they were actually pop songs in the day which is i find really funny you know like that snowbird was a massive hit it's really just it's a folk song um it's interesting but uh you know i love the eye patch (laughs) Uh, you know what i do too and so and why why do you love the eye patch well i kind of love the story that goes with it because um you know, my dad was pretty sick as a kid. He had polio and uh, had blue baby syndrome. He, mm. um, so he had this lazy eye, which I think was from the polio. Um, and so when he, he finally got his big break was to play on the Don Messer show. And um, they were super pumped. And Don Messer realized he didn't like the look of the lazy eye. He didn't think it was fit for television. Really? <laughs> so they took him in a makeup, cut out that velvet, a piece of velvet, and gave him the eye patch. Is that true? I had it's no true. idea. Yeah, so it wasn't like... and Which is the additional thing that's funny about the eye patch. So he hated it. And, you know, by the second record he put out in 1976, he wasn't wearing it anymore. Right. But uh, he wore it for a long time. And uh, it covered up his good eye. Like, he had one good eye, one not-so-great eye. So he couldn't really see when he was wearing it. And uh, if you see him on that clip from when he was playing the Don Messer show with his buddy uh, Blair, Blair Doucette, and so Blair is standing beside him on the side that the eye patch is. So Gene can't see Blair, but also Blair is deaf in that ear, so he can't really hear Gene. So I see them kind of smirking in that clip, and it's it's pretty funny. This just sounds like bad planning all around on everyone's behalf. <laughs> it's television. <laughs> yeah, it's television in the 60s, I guess, in yeah. the 60s and early 70s. Uh, you know, he he made a lot of money as a, as a songwriter, writing songs like Snowbird, Put Your Hand in the Hand. I mean, we, we talked about a few of these. These were big, big hits. But there's something that he says in the film. There's some archival... 
uh, footage in the film, and he says uh, about money that he, he says at one point, I, you know, I think I only spent 25 minutes writing Snowbird, and I feel awkward now that I've made so much money from it or that, you know, that it's, that it's getting so much attention. And later he says, success for me is enough money in your pocket to get you through the week and to have a beer. And it's pretty good. That sounds pretty good to me too, but it is, but he was uncomfortable with the success, right? He was really uncomfortable with it. He didn't think he had earned it. Mm. Um, And he also was, you know, of the time, he was like definitely more of a back to the lander kind of type, right. um, at at that point. And so the, this money coming into his life just felt like too much, um, and it, it ties into his religious uh, temperament and uh, spiritual seeking and all of this stuff that you know he he shouldn't have this all. And I, I don't know. It's it's a very complicated thing, but he certainly was uncomfortable with money. Yeah, yeah, but he but that money gave him the opportunity to be home a lot, though. Yeah, I mean, he was also able to do later on in his life. Um, like I, I, when I was growing up, he was away a lot, but he wasn't away doing, you know, playing big festivals or making a name for himself again. He was playing prisons. He was doing uh, prison ministry. Right. And so, yeah, the songs that he wrote in the '60s and '70s paid for him to do that. Like he never. He never got paid for that work, and he just would go endlessly doing these tours and and working uh, for what he thought was the greater good. And um, that, yeah, it did give him the freedom. But he still was terrible. Like he was so bad with money. <laughs> there was no money when I was growing up. We had enough to like yeah. keep us fed and housed, but and have a beer once a week yeah. or whatever the quote is. <laughs> yeah, but but it, so yeah, because the the idea that I had was that. Uh, and and again, this is you're telling me it's wrong, but that you know he makes a, a a wheelbarrow full of money off writing these songs, and that he was able to live in in PEI and not really have to play the game in the way that so many others had to. Yeah, I think he did have a bit of that luxury. I recently I, I've been doing this show of my dad's music, and mm-hmm. so I meet a lot of people coming that knew him back in the day, and yeah. I recently met his old accountant, <laughs> <laughs> and it was pretty interesting because he said he's like. You know, he was making a lot of money, but he was very bad at keeping it. He gave he gave so much of it away, and uh, you know, it's interesting. There's stories about you know the thun- the Thunderbird that he had that he offered to just give to his buddy Eric, and you know he, he yeah, it's like he just wanted it all to be gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's something. I, I mean, I, I I guess, and we'll talk about this in the next segment. I guess that is part and parcel of his depression, perhaps, and part and parcel of his mindset uh, was that, you know, he, he he felt that he wasn't good enough somehow, even though he's, you know, for a while dominating the charts, writing songs that, yeah. that everybody knows. Yeah, it's very, uh, well, it's very Gene, that's for mm-hmm. sure. It's very Gene. <laughs> uh, when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation uh, with Catherine McClellan. So the documentary is called The Song and the Sorrow, and it's going to play on October 10th, which is uh, World Mental Health Day as part of Rendezvous with Madness. And, you know, it's it's a, a, a short documentary that packs so much punch. And you'll recognize some of the music like this song. Born grass lies waiting for his coat to turn to green. 
So you'll be able to see the song and the sorrow at the Rendezvous with Madness Festival in Toronto at 7 o'clock at the Hot Docs Theatre, the Ted Rogers Cinema on Bloor Street. Then it plays at the Charlottetown Festival on October 12th uh, and on the TIFF film circuit across Canada before being made available to stream at nfb.ca next year. When we come back, we continue our conversation. Stay with us. Welcome back. I'm Richard Krause. I'm sitting with Catherine McClellan. Her dad, Gene McClellan, wrote a song that we just heard, uh, Snowbird. And you forget, if you haven't heard that for a while, how perfect Anne Murray's voice is. I know. Isn't I kinda, it something? I, I forget, and I've heard that a million times. And it actually, just listening to it just now, reminded me how beautiful her voice it is. It really is. And you were yeah. tapping your foot, too. And you've heard it a thousand or a million times, probably. <laughs> but uh, I remember growing up in Nova Scotia, and going to see her at a Stedman store, she was signing LPs, and I went and got my parents one. I saved up, and I got, Aww. and she was in her bare feet, which was her thing back then. That was a, one of her, her, um, uh, I don't know, part of her stage yeah. persona, you know. And uh, and she autographed records at the Stedmans all afternoon for a giant lineup. I think everyone in Liverpool, Nova Scotia, went Aww. to see her because again, she was from the Maritimes, and people were 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 very excited to see her. Uh, but we're talking about your dad, Gene. Uh, he is the subject of The Song and the Sorrow, and you can see that at the Rendezvous with Madness Festival in Toronto. It's screening on the 10th, October 10th, at the Hot Docs Theatre before going to the Charlottetown Festival on October 12th, and then it will do the TIFF film circuit across Canada, and then, if that wasn't enough, it will stream at nfb.ca next year. Uh, Let's hear uh, a little bit from another uh, song. Uh, that was a giant hit for your father uh, by a band called Ocean. This is Put Your Hand in the Hand. Put your hand in the hand of the man who steals the water. Put your hand in the hand of the man who calmed the sea. Take a look at yourself and you can look at others differently by putting your hand in the hand so- of the man. When you hear these songs, what goes what goes through your head? I mean, you were tapping your foot for Snowbird earlier when we played that. What goes through? I mean, you've heard them all so much, but it is a direct link. Most of us don't have direct links to our to our parents in that way. We have right. photo albums and things, but we don't have this kind of living document mm-hmm. that you have. Yeah, it's, it is funny because honestly, I've heard my dad's versions of the songs mm-hmm. more, especially in the last few years where I've been doing a lot of research and and learning, you know, his versions of the songs. And um, so, actually, just listening to that reminded me that I, I don't think I've heard it in a hundred years. Well, in in a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think I've ever listened to that version on purpose, um, partly because it was like a family sore spot that uh, because. It, they got the. They changed the lyrics, and my dad hated it. <laughs> really? I think he was quite. You know, he was happy enough about it being a hit song, but yeah, yeah they did. They they changed the lyrics, and uh, he, I don't know if they just didn't know what they were, if they made them more to their liking. <laughs> we used to every once in a while that would come up in conversation. <laughs> well, uh, I'll tell my producer Nick to delete that one from the system. Then. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, and Ocean was like an an obscure band at that yeah. point. You know, they weren't. They weren't doing a lot, and, and Anne Marie had already recorded Put Your Hand in the Hand, but uh, they I think they released it first, and it was a huge, huge hit for them. 
It's crazy. And was music everywhere when you were growing up? Uh, you know, when your father was home, you say he was, he was away a lot, but when he wasn't, you're a musician now. That would suggest to me that there was lots of music <laughs> in the house. Yeah, there were always people dropping by playing music with my dad. Um, also, you know, we all took piano lessons, as so many kids do. But, uh, yeah, there was it was really fun. Dad and my brother and my sister and I would often sit in the living room and just goof around. And, you know, my dad loved to play old rock and roll songs and yeah. Johnny Be Good and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> or old, uh, tradi- you know... I guess older jazz jazz standards and stuff. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was really nice. It was different than most of the maritime families I know that grew up with music in their house. They grew up with, you know, traditional Celtic or yep. Acadian music and and so I I couldn't play it, you know, an Irish tune to save my life <laughs> <laughs> or the fiddle. God help me, but uh, you know, I I certainly know what a folk song sounds like. Yeah. And and what's it like to sing his songs now? It's really nice. Yeah? Yeah, it's cool because for me, he's my greatest teacher as a songwriter. Right. Uh, the songs roll off the tongue so easily when you sing them. Um, he he really thought long and hard about how the words were going to go and, and just making sure every syllable was correct. And, um, and the chord structures are often very simple, but he had a couple little signature moves that, <laughs> you know, I can, I can see now. You probably recognize now that yeah. you're a songwriter as well, right? Yeah. Like I, in learning his songs, I never thought about it before, but, uh, his two, actually his three biggest hit songs didn't have a, a chorus really. Like they had a repeated lyric, right? But it was the same melody or and chord structure as the verses. So that's uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. His three biggest songs, and so made me think maybe that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder if that it was a trick that he had, or if it was just the way he thought about things. You yeah, know? I don't. It, I mean, Snowbird was the second song he ever wrote. I don't think he was <laughs> trying out any tricks or anything. I think it just kind of happened that way. Isn't that interesting? Because you talk about that in the film, and near the end of the film, you talk about how, and then you play the first song that he ever wrote. Uh, mm-hmm. We we hear a little bit of that, but that Snowbird went on to have such critical acclaim being only the second song that he ever written. And maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's, it was too easy, you know, <laughs> yeah. or it felt too easy for him. Yeah. But of course it's, it's the culmination of a lifetime of experience that leads up to that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He, he had been living already and, and living deeply and, and really searching around and it wasn't, yeah, it, it was uh, not exactly an easy task, his, his youth and, his life growing up. Well, you get a sense of that in the lyrics uh, of a lot of his songs, but the songs frequently end in a, in an okay place, but they're not always, they, there's a bit of work to get there, I yeah. think. There's a bit of melancholy, I think, that, that goes throughout the lyrics of his songs. Yeah, I think he didn't want to leave people hanging, though. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't want to leave people down, or himself. I think yeah. he was always looking for the upside of things. So... Yeah, even though most of his songs are pretty sad, they end with some sort of optimism. <laughs> <laughs> I'm speaking with Catherine McClellan. The documentary is called The Song and the Sorrow. You can see it if you happen to be in Toronto. You can see it at the Rendezvous with Madness uh, Festival that's happening on October 10th, and that is a World Mental Health Day, but you'll have lots of chances. This show runs across the country. You'll have lots of chances to see it at the uh, TIFF Uh, film circuit across Canada uh, later this year and into next year. It'll pop up at the Charlottetown Festival on October 12th. Lots of chances to see uh, the song and the sorrow. And when we come back, we continue our conversation with Catherine. Stay with us. 
My guest in the studio is uh, Catherine McClellan. Her dad, Gene, was uh, a songwriter. He was a singer, someone that I grew up uh, very much uh, listening to, Snowbird, Put Your Hand in the Hand, lots of other songs, songs recorded by Elvis Presley and, and Bing Crosby. Did he ever talk about that stuff? Did he ever say, like, here's, look, check it out. Elvis, my name on an Elvis record. Never. Never. My mom was really proud of him, though. And, you know, she had that gold vinyl that uh, Elvis put out with all the Canadian songs. Yeah, yeah. It was really cool to see two of my dad's songs on that record, along with Gordon Lightfoot and Bruce Coburn and, uh, well, tons tons of great Canadian songwriters. It was, yeah, it was so cool to think Elvis yeah. I had recorded my dad's songs. Well, and, and your dad started off as in the 50s as a rock and roller. It must have, in the back of his head somewhere, Yeah, it must have been a bit of a tingle. That must have felt pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he never talked about that stuff. The film is called The Song and the Sorrow. You can see it at the Rendezvous with Madness uh, Festival. It will play across the country on the uh, TIFF uh, film circuit. Uh, later this year and uh, into next year, and then eventually you'll be able to see it at nfb.ca. You can stream it. And it is the story of dealing with uh, the aftermath of your father's suicide and and coming to grips with it. And for a long time, uh, it was something that you just didn't talk about. And did you you just buried it? I guess that's what you do, right? Yeah, I guess we just moved on as a family, all individually and almost as a group. You know, yeah. we really didn't talk about it a lot. I think part of the that is that, you know, if he had died in a car accident or died of cancer, people are are much more apt to talk to you about it. I mean, death right. is always something people don't really want to deal with anyway, but when it comes to mental illness and suicide, there's a, a, a very big stigma around it, even still, but... Much it was much greater in my dad's time, and so I, you know, I think that was part of it. When when he died, people didn't want to talk to us about it because it was scary. And your mother didn't really talk to you, but she had an inkling as to probably more than an inkling. But back in 1995, when this happened, and and in the years before that, people didn't really talk about this as much as they did now. That's oh, he's not having a good day. Oh, it's you know, leave yeah. your dad alone today kind of yeah. situation rather than discuss openly and frankly what's going on. Yeah, and and because my dad didn't really discuss it open and frankly, um, we couldn't either, you know. Um, so he was non-diagnosed. He, w- he was diagnosed um, as depressed, mm-hmm. um, but post-mortem diagnosed as bipolar. They started to realize they had missed some of the things because he was... Uh, Definitely more on the depressive scale of mm-hmm. the bipolar right. uh, thing, but uh, you can see in all of the you know, in all the things he did, there's a, a very big manic side. It just showed itself differently. You know, he wasn't the guy trying to fly off a roof. You know, he was. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting. What well, you talk about at one point in the film, where he says, uh, where you say he would buy one jacket. And if he didn't love the jacket, he wouldn't take it back. He'd just go buy six more. And yeah. all of a sudden, he'd have seven jackets. You know, <laughs> there was that that swing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, when I tell the story of my dad's life during the show that I do, it, you know, every few songs, I'm talking about him buying a new house or <laughs> moving to a new place. You know, they built this beautiful log home and six months later decided to move to Ontario. So it's like, it just was like, 
you can see the big sweeping moves. He was never settled and uh, and never happy with the life that he had, and so was always f- trying to fix it. I think and changing it. And I think the 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 good part of the manic side was that he he was very creative and uh, yeah. he wrote a lot of great songs. He he sure did. What did you hope to learn from? Digging into his life, and and in the film we see you, you go back and talk to relatives, you talk to your mom, you talk to people, you talk to people that knew him well, uh, some people that have known him all his life, people like Lenny Gallant, we mentioned his name. Uh, Tell me what you hope to to gather from those interviews. I guess part of me was actually looking for some more realism about my dad and not just like how wonderful and great he was and kind and generous and funny and talented. (laughs) I was like, tell me something you know, a bit rugged or gritty, um, but nobody had those stories. <laughs> so uh, that was fine. Um, I guess the consistent thing was just that nobody knew he was depressed mm-hmm. and they all really liked him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he was a creative guy, a kind soul, and uh, and I think in some ways I have a lot to, to learn from the way that he lived, but also uh, a lot to learn for myself from the things that he didn't quite get right, you know. Right. And and what might those be? What sort of things? I think r- being vulnerable and allowing people to see, you know, the things that aren't perfect about you. Um, he definitely, you know, I was raised, as many kids were, to be seen, not heard. You know, he was very traditional in a lot of ways. He was also, you know, a product of the 60s and 70s, but he grew up, His he was born in 1938, so yeah. he, he was very traditional in a lot of ways. And, and so, yeah, we weren't, we weren't allowed to to make noise or, or be messy or, you know, all these things. So everything was had this, like, perfect outside appearance. And perhaps that was a way of coping. If it's perfect, if yeah. it appears perfect, then it's, then maybe, maybe it will be someday. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I know even when I, when I get depressed, the, if I have to go out into the world, you can kind of just put on this face that is, you know, because y- you just have to cope. That's all there is to it. And right. you don't want to bring people down, but you'd think your closest friends would know what's really going on. And when did you come to understand that that you had the same strain of depression that your father did? I don't know. I mean, uh, or, yeah, I yeah. guess it's not something you go, oh, one yeah. day you just say, look, <laughs> this just happened and I understand everything now. Yeah. It's not like that, I suppose. Right? No, it's a kind of slow unraveling. And uh, I just... Uh, yeah, I you know, it kind of situational sometimes, you know, deeper depressions would come because of, you know, a good breakup or, uh, yeah. uh, you know, lack of money, all kinds of stuff. And uh, I think it's just a, it's a part of my life that I'm learning to cope with. Yeah. And in this film, I, I perhaps is one of those ways to to look back and be introspective and, and, and look back at your family life. That is yeah part of the, I don't know if it's healing, but it's part of the process. It is. Yeah, it was healing in, in some ways in that I was able to kind of let go of it to say, okay, yeah, I've looked really closely at that. I've taken in what I need mm-hmm. and now I can let it be my past. I can look back at the good things and remember that and learn what I can from the hard things. But try to try to live my my journey now and and uh, I think I did have to kind of dig some of that up to to go forward yeah yeah I mean everything is a process there's nothing that's easy about it yeah. and that's the 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 funny thing about 
uh, I don't know, growing up, getting older, doing whatever it is that you do, you know, what, it, what, however you want to put it, is that you know it isn't that easy. Yeah. 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 Everybody's everybody's on their own journey. You know, everybody has a story that was worthy of a stage. I think. I, I think so. <laughs> I, I think so. Amanda Marshall had a song, uh, every, everyone's got a story that'll break your heart. Yeah. And and it's a line. I don't remember how the song goes, but I remember <laughs> that line. It stays with me, you know. It's true. Uh, I'm in conversation with uh, Catherine McClelland. The song and the sorrow is the film. It's playing at the Rendezvous with Madness Festival in Toronto. You can see it across the country uh, in the coming months. When we come back, we're going to talk about a show that you're doing all about your dad, Gene McClellan. Stay with us. The film is called The Song and the Sorrow. Catherine McClellan is my guest talking about her dad, Gene. Uh, he was a fixture on my television when I was growing up, uh, playing his own songs. If, uh, his, if it wasn't him playing those songs, it was Anne Murray singing Snowbird. It was Ocean singing Put Your Hand in the Hand. It was Elvis Presley. It was Bing Crosby. It was Loretta Lynn. So many people recorded your father's songs. Uh, and now you are a musician and an acclaimed musician. Is that, do you, I mean, I guess it's impossible to know, but would he have wanted you to follow in those footsteps? I don't know. I don't want my daughter to become a musician. <laughs> I wanted to do something practical. But I think he would, I I don't know. I mean, people come up to me every night that, you know, if somebody in the crowd knows, knew him, yeah. they're like, your dad would be so proud of you. Yeah. And and that's kind of nice to hear because I, I would like to think that he would be proud of me. I think he would be surprised that uh, I was able to ever get on a stage because I was pretty shy. But, yeah, uh, yeah I uh I guess it's like a family trade now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seems that songwriting. And then, when did you first start writing songs? I guess I, you know, I started. Oh, I, I remember a few really good ones that I wrote when I was like eleven. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I really started writing probably after, right after my dad died, because I was trying to figure out how to deal with all these emotions that I was having going through. So I, yeah, after he died, I kind of tucked myself away in a in my bedroom for a couple of years and learned how to play the guitar and write a song. <laughs> Has anyone ever heard those songs? Oh, yeah, some of them. I, I would come out and play them for my mom, and <laughs> that was when she began her quest for, will you ever write me a happy song? <laughs> <laughs> but I have. She just, yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting. When you look, and we touched on this earlier, when you look at the lyrics to some of your dad's songs, they always end up in a happy place, but Snowbird, which I remember, you know, as this lilting, beautiful song, is actually kind of sad. It's super sad. It's super sad. <laughs> uh, but now I feel such emptiness within for the thing that I want most in life's the thing that I can't win. God, and and heart. I don't. It will. It does kind of break your heart. And and I don't know that. It, I, I don't know if it was Anne Murray's beautiful presentation of the song or if it was the orchestral work behind the song, I never really caught that it was about, that it was so melancholy. I know. People come up to me a lot and say, wow, I never knew that was a sad song. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, I definitely grew up writing sad songs, loving sad songs, playing sad songs, and I slowed everything down if I learned somebody's song, unless it was already slow. <laughs> um, and so, so when I learned Snowbird, actually, I'd... I didn't have the feeling that it should be. I 
I don't know. I just learned it as it was and yeah. as a song on the guitar and I played it slow and that was what was natural to me. And But I don't, I don't think my dad ever played at that tempo. I think I think it was kind of an upbeat song when he wrote it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it. I mean, I don't know that for sure, but it feels like the, it's an upbeat song, certainly tempo-wise, when Anne Murray sings it, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, and my dad's versions too, but it's... Uh... Well, listen to, uh, if you if you want to hear a perfect example of a song that changes completely when you slow it down a little bit, listen to Dolly Parton's Jolene, oh. Slowed Down, and you can find it on YouTube, and it's really good. Cool. It's really good. Yeah, I want to hear that. Yeah, yeah, they've <laughs> taken the original song and just, you know, changed it up a little bit. So you are uh, doing a stage show. Now you've you've recorded an album of your father's songs and you are doing a stage show about him. Tell me a little bit about kind of living in that skin, you know, and doing that. Uh, because the film is one thing. Here it is, done. It'll be on TV. It'll stream on the nfb.ca. Well, people will see it, but I'm now done with that. You know, I've done it. This is something that you live over yeah, and over. Yeah, it's been on. And, uh, you know, the film also, I just showed up. I'd. I didn't. Do, I didn't make the movie. You but know? you're in. You're you're. I, in I just kind of yeah. showed up and I <laughs> talked. <laughs> Whereas, yeah, the stage show and the the album was. Um, it was really fun because I got to learn my dad's songs in this yeah. more intimate way. And then, the show itself. I you know I I wrote it with a couple friends of mine, Bob Mercero, who's actually writing a biography on my dad. Mm. So he had done all of this uh, research already, stuff that I never knew, and. We just went to town. We, like, tried to figure out what his life actually looked like. We went and visited people together that he couldn't get access yeah, to yeah. without me. Right. Um, so we kind of helped each other through that. And uh, I I feel like ultimately I've gotten to know him in a, in a much deeper way. I know his entire story inside and out probably could bore you to tears with it. <laughs> but uh, I also, yeah, I think for me mostly playing the songs is is where he's at, you know, and I, and I learn about him through his songs and I feel uh, definitely a connection with him through playing his songs. Yeah, I, I often feel when I look at the sort of totality of a songwriter's output that the biographical details don't really matter, right? He's not, you know, you're not writing everything about PEI and you're not writing, you know, uh, about wearing an eye patch on television. All that stuff goes away. But it's it's the the thought process, the 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 way the songs are written Really interesting that you said his three biggest hits don't really have choruses. That suggests a bit of a rebellious streak to me, you <laughs> yeah. know, and something that was a little different, you know, always looking for to for something uh, from a different angle than everybody else. And and that's where you learn. Mm -hmm. I think that's where you learn the, the real deal. Yeah, who he was. Yeah. yeah. And even songs like Put Your Hand in the Hand, I can kind of see part of his, you know, tendencies to to one, not feel worthy, but also to continue trying to show up every day and be the best person that you can be. And that's a lot. You know, if everybody did that, that'd be great. <laughs> and he was a spiritual guy. He was, yeah, he was very spiritual. I think he went in and out with it when he was younger, but grew up uh, in the Baptist church here in Toronto, actually. And um, then... Playing in a rock and roll band in the fifties here probably was the bit at which he drifted away from the church yeah, for a short while. One of the many times, yeah. <laughs> but I think he was always kind of, you know, divided between that spiritual life and a musical one. Yeah. And you know, even when he went to Bible college, one of the things that him and the other students would go do is like go do street corner preaching. But he'd be the one playing guitar and singing, right. and um, so yeah, it was always a part of his life. Both both of those things. Um, I think it was also. Probably his um, 
yeah, the thing that kind of haunted him the most was his imperfections and feeling like he, you know, hadn't lived up to his goals, I guess, Mm. as a spiritual man. Did you know his parents? Did you know his his grandparents? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, his parents were pretty lovely. My grandmother... Uh, Catherine McClellan, the yeah. first. Uh, <laughs> she she was incredible, kind of fierce. You wouldn't want to mess with her. Right, right. <laughs> but very loving. I spent a lot of time with her. And um, my grandfather, Philip, he was a real, you know, he had a sweet tooth. He was a giant of a man mm-hmm. and uh, had, you know, started out as a as a miner, a f- growing up on a, you know, a little farm in the Gaspé and then growing up. Uh, like, it's just, it's hard to believe that, you know, my grandparents grew up in the early 1900s, yeah. were adults in the Depression era, lived through the, you know, both world wars and uh, came out the other side as pretty cool people. Yeah, yeah. My grandmother lived through uh, and and barely uh, escaped the Halifax explosion. Wow. That's, which is yeah. something, you know, when yeah. you think back at this, uh, this incredible uh, thing and, and came out the other side, uh, you know. A lovely, warm, you know, mm-hmm. beautiful person. Yeah. And strong. And I strong. Mean, the, that well, generation. <laughs> I, I, that generation had something going <laughs> for them, I think, that's a little different than we <laughs> than we see every day now. That's true. Uh, so where can we see the show? Well, um, I've put it to bed for the summer. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, played all summer in PEI. And we have some dates in the Maritimes um, in the spring, in April, but that's all I have planned right now. Um, I've spent the last couple of years devoted to that, and uh, we're not sure what it's going to look like for the next uh, year or so. But I'll let you know. Yep. <laughs> what do you hope people take away from the film? And the film is called uh, The Song and the Sorrow, and it's all about Gene McClellan, and I'm speaking with his daughter, Catherine, also a singer and songwriter, acclaimed. Uh, what, what do you want the, the, the film to tell people? Ultimately, I think I just want people to walk away feeling uh, maybe like they are allowed to talk about mental health and that they're allowed to um, support people going through it. And, you know, the goal is to reduce the stigma mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, normalize it in a way. It's like every everybody's going through it. Everybody's affected by mental health issues, whether it's them personally or someone in their family or a close friend. Nobody is untouched. And so... If, you know, for us to be talking about it more can only do good. It can help people find the help that they need. And uh, and hopefully, you know, fewer people have to lose people they love to suicide. There has been a sea change recently in the last number of years. It's still not enough, I don't think. Uh, but there has been a sea change in that people are more willing to seek help. They are more willing to... to uh, uh, ignore the stigma or, 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 or not worry about mm-hmm. coming out and saying, yeah, I'm depressed or I'm, I, you know, I'm, I have a mental illness that I, that I need help with. Yeah. It's amazing. It's wonderful. There's lots of things changing right now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, you know, there's lots of scary things <laughs> happening in the world right now, but there's also some really beautiful things happening. And, and so, yeah, that's, uh, we'll just all do what we can, you know, this is what I can do. Do you have a favorite song of your father's? I, you know, I love lots of them. I think one of my favorites is Lonesome River because it's, it is such a beautiful haunting song and uh, it doesn't, it doesn't resolve in an answer, you know, it just mm-hmm. continues questioning, you know, Lonesome River, where are you taking me kind of thing and, and it's a really nice song. Do you remember him writing? 
songs? Oh, yeah. He was yeah. around the house all the time, pen, paper, guitar, in the living room, at the kitchen table. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, come down, he'd be writing. He, You know, when he was writing, he was writing all the time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he also was a big editor. You know, he spent... A, I don't think he was in the early days. I think it came easier, quicker. Um, but... Yeah, when I was growing up, he spent a lot of time just perfecting each syllable. And so I learned a lot, I think, from him just about the work ethic of, of being a songwriter. Catherine, thank you so much for this. Thank you. Uh, here is Catherine's version of one of her father's best-known song, Snowbird. Beneath its snowy mantle, cold and clean the unborn grass lies waiting for its coat to turn to green. Thank you for listening in. My thanks to Nick Mariano on the board, and we'll talk again next week.